Okay, so this is the Romans Bible study. We are preparing to do Romans 10 tonight. Um, we expect Father Daniel to join us here shortly, but we thought we should go ahead and make a beginning. So let me go ahead and uh, begin with our prayer. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from everlasting, and then all holy good and life-creating spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Okay, so let me share the screen here. There it is. So, um, Erica, would you mind reading the first four verses for us? Sure. Thank you. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness they, or that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Thank you. So, um, as St. John looks at this, the way he reads really the whole of chapter 10 is, it is a stronger rebuke of the Jews, which is to say the unbelieving Jews, um, than Paul has given up to this point. And so he begins saying his heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved to make it clear that the rebuke he's about to give is not out of malice toward the Jews, but out of, it, it is coming from someone who loves them um, so that he will not alienate them by the rebuke as though he were coming at them as an enemy. And he sort of follows that in verses two and three by citing what would seem at first glance to give them an excuse for their resistance to the gospel and to sal the salvation offered in it. Uh, in verse two, he testifies to them that they have a zeal for God. And in verse three, that it is ignorance that has led them uh, to make the mistake they're making. And, you know, on the face of it, being zealous for God should offer them a defense and that they uh, were ignorant, that they were not doing what they were doing with knowledge would seem to offer perhaps even a stronger defense. And yet, even here, he begins to whittle away at that defense because in some sense, the, the rest of this chapter is largely about showing that 
those defenses don't, don't hold up, that they are defenseless. Um, so, you know, in verse two, yes, they have a zeal. Oh, but it's not a zeal according to knowledge. And I guess maybe he builds on that. So, okay, so they're suffering from ignorance. That would normally be uh, a defense. But, he, and, you know, I think of the Apostle Paul speaking elsewhere, I don't remember where offhand, of um, God showing him mercy because when he was persecuting the church, he was doing it in ignorance. And so he certainly seems to think that ignorance is a defense. But he says here, they didn't know God's righteousness, and instead they were seeking to establish their own, or in Chrysostom's translation, it says going about to establish their own, and uh, not submitting to the righteousness of God. And this language, in it he sees that um, it's not really the ignorance that caused them to reject the gospel. But it was from there that his words were petulance and love of power. And so he says, for instance, this going about to establish their own righteousness, that is the righteousness of the law, first of all, shows that they hadn't succeeded. Because if they had succeeded, they wouldn't still be going about it. And so they should have recognized that even the righteousness they were pursuing, they had failed to achieve. And uh, when it says then, and I think he reads also in that, that this is something that they were working at, that they weren't just ignorant and, you know, doing what they thought they were supposed to be. It's like, no, no, they were really working at pursuing this righteousness of their own rather than God's. And when it says they did not submit themselves under the righteousness of God, he sees there a resistance to the Holy Spirit. Where they were sort of actively resisting the righteous or refusing the, the righteousness by faith and were continuing to seek but vainly uh, the, the righteousness of the law so we have two righteousnesses here and they're not getting either one of them they're refusing one and they're working on the other but not succeeding any thoughts so far um None that are coming to me right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so then this very interesting verse, because of the way Chrysostom reads, reads it, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And, you know, in my evangelical days, I always understood that word end in the sense we most commonly use that word uh, in, and that is as a termination. So it's like, Christ is the end of the law. It's done away with. It's gone. It's over. Um, and that was, of course, important as an evangelical because, you know, we're not under law, but we're under grace. Law's done. You know, we're doing something else. Again, as though the law were the right, wrong kind of thing that needed to be rejected for the sake of grace. But John Chrysostom understands the word end here in the sense of a goal or a purpose or a fulfillment not a termination. So, you know, when we say the the end of, I don't know. I'm checking the Greek, but uh, I'm assuming he probably uses the word telos there, which is like the purpose that something was, mm. is intended for. Okay. Uh -huh. So. Yeah, that's something you can check. I would love to know, but that sounds right to me. 
Yep, telos is the word he, that's used there in the Greek. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, so as Chrysostom looks at this, you know, it's not that Christ terminates the law, it's that he is what the law was there for to start with. He is its purpose, its goal, or its fulfillment. And so I want to read um, some of my notes about his comments here, and these are not necessarily in the natural, the most coherent order, but they all occurred to me because he said a great deal about this one verse and it was kind of hard to know how to present it. But he says, first of all, Paul has spoken of two righteousnesses here, one by law and one by faith. And what he's now showing is, in fact, they are not two, but they are only one. There's only one righteousness. And he gives a picture here. He says the end of a doctor's learning and techniques is health. A man who can restore health has all that it means to be a doctor, even if he lacks the learning and techniques. And on the other hand, a man who has all the learning and techniques and doesn't restore health has nothing of what it means to be a doctor. And so similarly, he says, Christ is the end of the law. That is, he is all that the law aimed at. Thus, he who has Christ has all the righteousness of the law and more besides. And he who does not have Christ has nothing of the righteousness of the law either. Um, he goes on and says then that, that the object of the law, that is the end, the object of it, was to make man's righteous, was to make man righteous, but the weakness of men deprived it of the power to accomplish its object. Christ, however, through faith gave man even a greater righteousness than the law imagined. Um, and so um, Chrysostom saying Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes essentially says, look, it's all the same thing. What the law was after, Christ is. If you gain him, you gain what the law was about. If you don't have him, you've missed what the law was about too. So it's all just one. And Chrysostom explains here that Paul was making these comments for the sake of Jewish believers who were facing accusations from the Jewish unbelievers that they had become lawless, that these Jewish believers had become lawless, that they had given up the righteousness that's by the law. And Chrysostom says, you know, Paul knew that these Jewish believers, having newly come to the faith, were susceptible of being led away just like the Gentiles could be. And so it was important to give them some encouragement. But he says Paul also is aiming this comment at the unbelieving Jews who might be saying, well, yes, we don't we haven't yet achieved the righteousness that's by the law, but we're going to. It's going to happen still. We just aren't there yet. And so essentially saying to them, look. The, the fulfillment you're looking for is in Christ. If you don't have him, you're never going to have what the law was aiming for. Thoughts, comments, questions, corrections? Oh, wait a minute. Father Daniel seems to want in. Here we go. I hope that wasn't sitting there for 10 minutes. Hello, Father Daniel. Howdy. I hope I didn't keep you waiting for 10 minutes. No, 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 no. Okay. Sorry. 
I'm working on two screens and the notice popped up on the other screen. And so it didn't produce a, a sound that cued me. <laughs> no problem. Okay, well, about uh, 8.40, we decided to go ahead and make a start. I hope that's okay. Yes, please. Next time, just start without me because <laughs> there's always things going on here. <laughs> right. <laughs> we know, always plenty for the priest to do. So we just finished with verse 4. And let me go ahead and just recap very briefly. Um, for Christ is the end of the law that Chrysostom reads that word end in the sense of object or purpose or goal rather than the sense of termination. And then uh, Erica verified for us that the Greek word there is telos. Um, and so Chrysostom essentially reads this and says, look, a man who doesn't have all the learning of a doctor but can heal you is accomplishing everything a doctor has in mind. And someone who calls himself a doctor and has all the training and skills but doesn't heal you isn't accomplishing what a doctor does. The same way the law was there to make men righteous, but it wasn't able to do that. But Christ is the righteousness and brings the righteousness that the law was aiming at. So he who has Christ has everything the law was aiming at. And he who doesn't have Christ doesn't even have the righteousness of the law. So that, I think, was the most interesting point so far, to read that word end, not in the sense of a termination like I always did as an evangelical. So is there anything you'd like to comment or add on the first four verses there? Looks good to me. Okay, good. <laughs> it's all about Jesus. That's right. So we're ready to go on here. Uh, let's look at the next section, verses 5 through 13. Father Daniel, would be, you be so kind as to read those for us? <clears throat> for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. For the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thank you. This means you don't have to be baptized, right, Reed? <laughs> I don't think St. John read Talk about it like evangelical that hangover. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the way St. John looks at this, uh, in verse 5, the Apostle Paul has made an assertion, and now he's going to start backing it up with Scripture. And so, first of all, he begins to compare the righteousness by law and the righteousness by faith. And so, first of all, by law, the man who does these things shall live by them. So, very simply, um, 
the only way to become righteous through the law is to do everything it says, and no one's found that possible so far. Now, with verses six through nine, we begin to look at the righteousness that is by faith. And Chrysostom says, now the Jews may be saying, now look, how is it those who missed the lesser righteousness now have found the greater? And Chrysostom says, well, it's very simple. The greater righteousness was easier. Okay, um, and his he says that really the the apostles' explanation of that doesn't show up until verse eight. So he says, okay, well the righteousness by faith is easier. Why? It says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. You know it's near. It's not far away. It's easy. You confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. You believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You don't have to cross land and sea to do that. You can do it right at home. It's easy. And yet at the same time, before he gets to how easy it is, he wants to explain how difficult it is because he doesn't want the Jews to despise faith as though it's something cheap. And so he explains it this way. He says, now look, if you're trying to pursue the righteousness by law, there is something that opposes you, and this is listlessness. Okay, you really have to be, um, uh, where is it, wakeful, greatly wakeful not to give in to just growing listless and not doing all the obedience. On the other hand, when you want to pursue faith, the opponent you have is not the listlessness, but, quote, reasonings which confuse and make havoc of the minds of most men. It takes great vigor to shake them off. So the man trying to be justified by law has to fight listlessness, but the man who wants to be justified by faith has to fight reasonings. And he goes on and elaborates on this, and I'd like to read this, which is I'm not quite reading or paraphrasing St. John, but I'm close to it. So earlier, Paul had pointed out the greatness of Abraham's faith by showing all the reasons that opposed it, namely the deadness of his own body and of Sarah's womb. Now he indicates the same for believers. It takes vigor and a lofty soul that embraces what is beyond expectation and does not stumble at appearances. It requires a wise mind and a great and heaven-reaching spirit. The words do not say in your heart, they're in verse um, six, indicates the absence of doubt even internally. A chief characteristic of faith is that it, it is that it ignores the usual order of cause and effect in this lower world, seeking rather what is above nature, abandoning the feebleness of calculation, and accepting everything from the power of God. And I take it that he's seen part of this where he talks about bringing Christ down from above and bringing Christ up from the dead as though, you know, don't stumble at these marvelous things having to happen. Um, I thought this was very interesting because I think of how often it shows up in our hymnography um, that where the spirit is or where God is at work, the, the order of nature is overturned. And in particular, our hymns often say that of the of the birth of Christ from the Virgin, from the Theotokos, is that 
you know, even though um, childbearing is foreign to virginity, yet where God is at work, the order of nature is overcome. And so what St. John seems to be saying here is the sort of faith that we're called to have is to believe in something that does not follow from any of the order of what we see day by day, or sort of the way people think that the world works. So then he goes on and says, at the same time, the way of faith is easy. It's close at hand, which means it's nearby. So you don't have to go climbing mountains, that is ascending into the heavens, or crossing oceans, that is descending into the abyss. You can gain this righteousness at home without even crossing the threshold. He says even the, right, the resurrection of the dead is easy, which he mentions there in uh, verse 9. Um, when you consider who it is who's accomplishing it. And so the way he wraps this up is to say the Jews then show their contentiousness in rejecting the righteousness that is both greater and easy to receive, and instead choosing the one that's lesser and burdensome and impracticable and impossible. And so his comment is the law is galling, but grace is easy. What excuse then can they have? So any thoughts, comments, questions, enlightenments, objections? I'm just always amazed <clears throat> at how differently St. John's intuition, which seems to be same, like he keeps the, it's the same intuition that it's, keeps reading these passages, but it's just so different than my base intuition and how I was formed to read this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. I I also think it just usually makes more sense than what once I once I get to that position, then I see I'm like, oh, that actually holds it all together better. <laughs> well, I know the first time I went through all of this again and again, I would looking at look at it as an evangelical and think, well, but this next passage has got to say pretty much the same things I've always thought it said, and then. He would read it differently too. And it's like, oh, he just never stops. <laughs> and he makes more sense. Realize. Yes. And so, you know, so much of it then is that he is addressing the objections and the, uh, the accusations of the unbelieving Jews. And in particular, as it's, influencing and, and making, making things hard for the Christians, both Jews and Gentiles there in Rome. And so, you know, to understand that this is not a general theological discussion about the importance of law or the lack thereof for Christians, it's specifically a defense and a protection pastorally done for the believers in Rome against the accusations they were facing from the Jews. And with that much narrower context, it does make so much more sense. Okay, so um, let's see. Then verses 11 through 13, Revelation will not be put to shame. There is no distinction. So let's see here. Um, 
Paul asserts again what he's already argued earlier in Romans 3, that there is no difference between Jew and Greek. And um, in particular, Paul seems to be taking there in verse 11, where he and verse 13, both where he's quoting the Old Testament prophets, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That Paul seems to be putting a lot of emphasis on this word whoever, that it does not make any, it does not restrict this at all to the Jews. It is for everyone. Um, he also points out in the sort of a Trinitarian argument, remembering that he's still in the days of the Arians, that in Romans 3, uh, the apostle Paul spoke of God making no distinction. And here in verse 12, he says, the Lord, speaking of Christ, and you know, to him it's completely the same. To speak of God or to speak of Christ, he's not making a distinction there. He also comments, that is, Chrysostom comments, uh, that here this word riches, the Lord, the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him, that the Lord so desires our salvation that he considers it his riches to save us and to distribute that gift to all and not just to the Jews. And so in particular, the Gentiles, the Gentile believers have no cause to despair or to fear that they will be found unpardonable despite having repented, for the Lord is not going to cease being rich. Um, and it, I mean, this is maybe a, a familiar idea to us that no one is so sinned that he can't be received by God. But it's interesting that Chrysostom makes it here in terms of God's riches, that God considers himself to be rich and that more repent and are forgiven and receive the gift of, of grace and salvation. And so, you know, no one should fear being unpardonable because God's not going to be made less rich. Um, and there was one passage where I found a hard time had a hard time determining whether Chrysostom was trying to say that Paul was saying this about the Jews or about the Gentiles. I finally narrowly concluded that it's about the Jews. But he says here that Paul's concern is that the Jews who had enjoyed unique honor and blessing from God should now, in missing faith and holding obstinately to the law, lose, lose everything and become no better than the pagans. And so he's quoting the prophets here trying to show to them that the Jews and the Gentiles are meant to enjoy equal honor in the faith. So he's still aiming for the repentance and the salvation of the Jews in these comments. Okay. So if there are no comments, we will march on. Okay, picking up at verse 14, would uh, either of you be so kind as maybe to read, it really goes all together, 14 to the end? We can do that. Thank you. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed our report, 
So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are, are, by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Thank you. Okay, I'm gonna change this a little bit. Getting tired of seeing that gap ad. Here we go. Okay, so here as Chrysostom reads this, he sees that the apostle Paul is trying to show that the ignorance of the Jews, which he's talked about back at the beginning of this chapter, is inexcusable. And it does not offer them any excuse. And essentially, he does this by positing a series of objections or questions that a defender of the Jews might offer. That says, okay, they were ignorant. Well, okay, of course they were ignorant because how could they call on someone they didn't believe in? And I mean, they couldn't have believed if they hadn't heard the message and they couldn't hear if no one preached to them and no one would preach unless he was sent out. Okay, so it's kind of like there are all these obstacles in the way if they're ever having received this message. You know, surely this is a defense for them. And um, the Apostle Paul begins answering that from Isaiah here, where he says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And so he says, Okay, first of all, the very nature of the preaching mentioned here, that is a gospel of peace and glad tidings of good things, points out who the preachers are. Namely, it's the apostles and the evangelists because they were teaching of unspeakable good things and of peace made by God with man. So the Jews hearing this message should recognize, oh, these are the preachers whom Isaiah was speaking about because they have the right kind of message. And he immediately addresses a new objection, verse 16, but they've not all obeyed the gospel. Some of the Jews might say, well, if these were the real preachers, everyone would have believed. And Isaiah and, he, and Paul quotes Isaiah to say, no, no, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Okay, so Isaiah saying, look, the message came and lots of people didn't believe it. In fact, it kind of seems like no one has. Um, and then as Chrysostom reads verse 17, it's almost as though the apostle Paul, having quoted Isaiah to one end, namely to point out that not everyone would believe, says, oh, wait a minute, I've got another good point here, that this is all about a report, right? These are the words of God. And so they were supposed to believe a report. And so faith comes by hearing. And he says, this is in opposition to the Jews who are always looking for signs and wonders. And so Paul showing from the prophets that it wasn't by miracles that 
the Jews should come to believe, but on the basis of the word of God, the report. And he goes on and says, but it isn't just any words that produce faith, not merely hearing some words, but it's a special kind of hearing, a great kind of hearing that results from hearing the very words of God. Because God's words, in fact, produce both works and miracles, because, in fact, he created the whole world by his words. And these messengers, the apostles, were speaking not their own words, but the very words of God. So the preaching, the words were adequate. And they weren't just any words, but the very word of God. So going on, verse 18 says, OK, so maybe we can agree. There were preachers, they were sent out, but the Jews didn't hear. What if the Jews did not hear? And here again, he brings in uh, Isaiah. Uh, sorry, no, he brings in the Psalm, Psalm 18. Um, saying, the, the sound has gone out to all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. This preaching has gone everywhere. Can the Jews who had the apostles, first of all, living among them for so long, somehow claim that, oh, the message never got to them? Certainly not. And so then, uh, let's see, verse 19. Let me scroll up a little bit. Says, okay, so did Israel not know? And here Chrysostom says, you know, did, did the Jews somehow not know what was being under what was being said, or they didn't understand who the preachers were? Do they have an excuse in this? And Chrysostom says, well, no, because Isaiah has already explained the character of the preachers and their message, so that's clear. Moreover, they had the words of Moses from Deuteronomy. Here, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation, testifying that the Gentiles would receive greater honor than the Jews through receiving the gospel. And this was going to be galling to the Jews and provoke them to jealousy. And so the Jews had their prophets saying, look, you see how the Gentiles are believing and getting ahead of you and you aren't believing and are being left behind? I prophesied that. You're supposed to see that things have been inverted. They've been turned over here. And that's supposed to make you jealous. And when you see your jealousy, you should come to me in repentance and faith, because you see, I predicted this all along. I warned you of it. And then uh, Paul goes on in verse 20 to quote Isaiah, making the same point. In Chrysostom, in, in this word says Isaiah was very bold, means essentially, often the prophets would kind of obscure their message because if they said it plainly, the people would kill them or hurt them. But here, Isaiah says it very plainly. I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Not in veiled words, because he wanted so much for the, it to be clear for the Jews so they would understand it. And so what he says is the Jews weren't even looking for God, and yet they found him. And this was a great rebuke to the Jews that the foolish Gentiles, the insignificant Gentiles who weren't even a nation, who weren't even seeking God, found him. And were enjoying greater honor than the Jews who had God's words and were seeking him. And so finally in verse 27, um, which is a quote from Isaiah 55, he says, so what excuse do the Jews have for missing salvation? None at all. 
that's Paul's real point. The reason for their missing salvation is their own hostility to God. But Paul doesn't say that. He continues the argument he's been making. He quotes Isaiah 55 too, and then just sort of leaves the conclusion unspoken. He leaves it implicit, as Chrysostom says that Paul has done elsewhere, that he doesn't want to make his message galling and annoying to his audience. So he kind of leads, the to, leads them to the conclusion and then just quietly goes on and lets them draw their own conclusions so that they can see the point without his having to rub their faces in it. Um, and so what is the point that Paul is making here? What has happened, that is, people being saved or not, has been the result not only of God's grace, but also of the temper of the people. The Gentiles, though they weren't seeking God, when nevertheless they found him, kind of stumbled on him is how it sounds to me, and that happened by grace, so the Gentiles don't have any room to boast either. But when they, when they did find him without seeking, they did receive him and sought to know the God who to know what God had shown to them. And on the other hand, the Jews who had been enjoying God's constant calling and drawing to himself, which is what the meaning of stretching out his hands to them meant, that he was trying to pull them to himself, that despite this, they remained disobedient and contrary and obstinately went on pursuing their own righteousness by the law rather than submitting to the righteousness of God. And at that point, God tried to employ an even stronger motivation by provoking them to jealousy of the Gentiles. And Chrysostom goes off and gives sort of an illustration. He says, sometimes you'll have a child who is not being obedient and not being affectionate toward his father. Suddenly the father starts to fa show favor to some other child and the obstinate child suddenly, out of jealousy, comes over and starts cooperating and, and loving and being affectionate. My wife says, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, certainly we do this with children at times. It's like, oh, well, I don't need to correct you. I'm just going to praise someone else for doing the right thing. And suddenly everything's different. And so Chrysostom says that this is what Paul is arguing here about the Jews, that God has used even this stronger motivation of jealousy to provoke the Jews out of jealousy of the Gentiles to respond to him. He's announced this jealousy by the prophets, and despite all of this, the Jews are still unmoved. And so, you know, the conclusion unspoken is, so yes, they, they may have been ignorant. Yes, they may have been zealous. None of it provides any excuse for their having missed salvation. And that's the end of my notes. Love to hear what anyone has to say about it. I remember this section, most of this chapter, being places where I would have arguments with evangelicals when I back, but when I was a Protestant, being because they would see these and use them completely out of context. So for example, 
16 and 17 is like mission statement territory, right? They have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah said. So this means now we got to send people to Africa to preach the gospel yep. because of this. Well, it is true that we need to go to gospel to places and preach the gospel. That's not what he's saying. This is also where they would go to very often to say, see, this is how you have get faith because you heard and then you listened. And therefore that's why you are saved because of uh, the verses above, right? All you have to do is believe and confess and you're done. Mm-hmm. Which just has nothing to do with <laughs> this context. And Paul and Chrysostom reading it as a continued excursus or like engagement with the, the Jews in Rome makes so much more sense. Mm-hmm. And I yawned, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we know you've had a long day. Hey, I'm on. I, I've been sleeping great, though. Oh, good. Because I've got a machine that helps me now. <laughs> Is that a sound machine? Uh, No, a CPAP machine. Oh, CPAP. Like, oh okay. Oh, yeah. I'm actually not dying at night 15 times oh cool yep even like verse 15 how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace who bring glad tidings of good things all of this just got just picked cherry picked for random things mm-hmm. yep now i remember trying to make this point with some of the folks I was close to it's like the way we hop skip and jump through Romans this is not how you read anything unless you're trying to do something fast and quick with it (laughs) right like unless you're using it for some other end instead of understanding that right and so that really does make sense going back to uh, faith is by hearing wait where is that Oh, no, sorry. But if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know, if you understand in the in the context, context of, yeah, it is easy. It's not like trying to obey all the law, but this is not like the salvation algorithm. I mean, you can tell he's still talking about Jew and Greek because of verse 12. Like, all of this is flowing together about... Judaism and Greek and Hellenistic believers and the rejection of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I do find some real encouragement in this um, as he talks about, as Chrysostom reads in this and talks about the nature of faith and that faith means looking for what is above nature, beyond nature, not in the normal run of things. Um, you know, just as Abraham left and went out and said, you know, God's going to do great things. And, uh, you know, to me and my seed, all these things are going to happen, even though I don't have a seed. And even now it's been a long time and there's really no prospect of having a seed. And I think of of the Virgin Mary, um, you know, believing the message of the angel Gabriel, even though this is something that 
is not how things happen. And to think, okay, well, you know, I can look at myself and say, you know, really my prospects for salvation don't seem very good. You know, not a lot in my life to, to lead me to expect, you know, great things regarding salvation. And yet this is the very thing God calls us to, to believe that he intends to do in his grace far greater things than would result out of our actual deeds and even faith. I've been thinking lately of the parable of the talents and how, you know, the king or the master gives these men some money to work with. And when he comes back and finds that some of them have done well with it, he then sets them as rulers over cities. And it really strikes me that this is maybe something like what John Chrysostom is reading out of the apostle here, that, you know, God calls us to will and to work or to will and to run. And yet the rewards he intends to give us are like so vastly disproportionate to anything we're doing that, you know, we can't begin to take credit for any of it. It's all his grace. And so the same way, investing a little money and making a return on it is not nearly the same thing as ruling over 10 cities. And, you know, they were faithful in a little thing. They were rewarded with a big thing. And it's made me wonder is this the very picture that the Apostle Paul is laying out here uh, in, in some of the way that John Chrysostom reads it? Anyway, I, I've already said more than I know or had prepared. So, anyone else like to say anything at all so next week is romans 11 yes there's 16 chapters in romans right yes so 11 we're going to keep going with the same theme here yes Oh, all right. I see. We're going to get to have some specific fun next week. <laughs> yep. With verse six. And if by yep. grace, that is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But as of works is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Oh, the verses that, uh, what shall I say? What's the saying from the, is the Odyssey? The woman that made many ships go to sea or cast off. Oh, yeah. The, the face that launched a, a thousand ships. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the verses that launched a thousand commentaries. <laughs> <laughs> and confusion. I look forward to talking about that. That's a long chapter, too. We'll have to move quickly. And if I understand the structure of this, this probably wraps that whole line of argument up. Right. Because I think at the beginning of chapter 12, we move into the section of exhortation and encouragement. Yes, yes. So, 
I would anticipate that, that this would represent sort of the climax of that line of argument. Yep, looks like it. Okay, well, very good. Excellent. Okay, well, shall I go ahead and stop the recording? Sure. So we can talk about David when it's off recording. <laughs>